we have a, a conference that we normally do. It's with, you know, with the slides and the several nights, and it's, uh, it includes a date night, and it's fun, and we laugh and we cry. Uh, I can't even begin to present that, and, but tonight I thought <clears throat> I would do uh, uh, maybe a little bit of uh, teaching tonight on uh, the principles that make for a good marriage, and we want to talk about maybe some of the, the negative things, Be you know, because the negative is what keeps built from building the positive. You keep shorting out, and no matter what you put good into a marriage, if you keep uh, shorting out the system, you're going to end up with a dead battery and a bad marriage. What we do is extremely practical. We, we use scriptures a lot because that's the basis of all that we do. But uh, when you say, well, what does a clinical counselor do as opposed to, say, a pastoral counselor? A clinical counselor sort of gets down and dirty. We get real, we, we try to figure out the nuances of why you do what you do that's making life painful for you. We, t we suggest, we give assignments, we check on if you're doing, doing the assignments, have you done that? We've identified dysfunctional thinking. We try to figure out why you uh, aren't getting better. For instance, uh, <clears throat> if you know some scriptures and you read the scriptures and you say, I, I've read those scriptures and they don't help, it's probably because there's a little interference going on. Um, what happens is that you, you have a prejudice because of your habits and you tend to read verses and make them fit in, the, in that. So you have a distortion, maybe even of what the Word of God teaches that needs to be corrected. It's things like that. It is uh, uh, because you uh, have certain genetics and certain personalities. Don't look at anybody now. And, uh, but you, you know, that, that can interfere because, and then in, in uh, child rearing and things like that, you could have learned uh, bad habits from bad parenting and dysfunctional families and then you bring that into your new marriage thinking that that's quote normal and then you end up harming the kids. So I'm sort of an examiner and uh, a guide and a coach and um, we enjoy a good reputation around the country from all kinds of churches everywhere but I concentrate on believers. I want to help the church. I think the church is held together by the families and the families are held together by the couples. And so I major on relationship counseling and I do a lot of things on depression. Uh, not long, but we usually we can uh, help pretty readily with depression and anxiety and things like that. We can identify some of those factors. So it's real hard, you know, to ask for help, but, that, but when you do, you're always the hardest call I ever made as a grand pooba. You know what a grand pooba is? Oh, that's someone that's got, he's got so-called so such a big, this big a church and that kind of thing. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was a huge church. And, uh, but I was, I was failing. And the hardest thing, I'd sent probably 150 couples and, and uh, people that were really struggling with some rather troubling things. Uh, to uh, a Christian counselor that I got to know very well. And uh, then uh, I realized that I was, I was at the point where I couldn't go on. And I had to pick up that phone. Boy, you talk about pain. After preaching to others that I myself was in drastic need of help. And when I picked up the phone, he, sa uh, he said, uh, hey, how are you? It's fine. I said, what you got for me? I said, a real weirdo. And I was trying to use that humor again, you know. And I said, uh, in pretty bad shape as a pastor. Is he a friend of yours? Not really. I don't think I like him. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, well, what can I do? How can I help? And uh, I said, Bill, it's me. And he said, I'll be right there. And the next thing I saw was him pulling in. I'm telling you. It, 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 it thrilled me to know that there was a ministry out there of somebody that, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help. I can help you. And uh, I don't mean to be bedocious about it, but 
if you have the right training, both biblically and in understanding a little bit how the mind works and how, to, how this depravity of ours is so desperately twisted, uh, and if you spend some time studying human behavior, uh, you can find out things that uh, you don't readily know on the surface. And uh, he was such a tender and helpful guy. And when I received my new calling, which is uh, sort of a, uh, a counselor at large, uh, I always remember the dear help of uh, my counselor friend. And uh, I have pledged myself to do you no harm. And that uh, I want to be uh, a rescue boat, uh, a rescue plane. I watch the Coast Guard planes go overhead every day. Almost makes me cry. And I said, go get them. Go get them. And boy, was I in trouble. And what a sweet thing it is to know that there's wisdom in many counselors. And sometimes we just need help. So don't be afraid to call. I, hey, I'll join you. No matter what you've done, I've heard it, probably done it. So just let me know, and I'll try to help. A woman's husband had been slipping in and out of a coma for several months, yet she stayed by his bedside every single day. Well, one day he motioned for her to come nearer, and he sat by him and leaned over, and he whispered, eyes full of tears. He said, you know what, honey? What? You have been through, been with me all through the bad times. When I got fired, you were there to support me. When my business failed, you were there. When I got shot, you were by my side. When we lost the house, you stayed right here. When my health started failing, you're still at my side. You know what? What, dear, she gently asked, smiling as her heart began to fill with warmth. I think you're bad luck. <laughs> That's what I mean. Sometimes you need counseling because you just don't get it. <laughs> you just don't get it. And I came to that point in my life that we were desperately trying not to lose each other and not to lose our love. And what a wonderful thing that we need each other, that we need to bond together and help each other and quit being pretentious. We all we all fail. We all have problems. We all need help sometimes. And I just want to pledge that I want to be, as long as I'm useful to this church, I want to be available to you. Uh, this is from a book, and I'll get serious, I think. <laughs> this book from called Disorder in the Court, and are things people actually said in court, word for word. Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, autopsy did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? This is actual words for the court. Right? No. So then it is possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy. No. How can you be sure, doctor? Because his brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. <laughs> Really true. But could the patient still have been alive nevertheless? <laughs> yes, it's possible he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> Another in my humorous example, sometimes we just don't get it. And we need someone to explain it to us. <laughs> okay, you might want to take some notes, because this is going to just be a talk, a lecture, a little bit, and I want to give you a basis of fixing a marriage. And I want to talk to you maybe about the five things that we concentrate on um, 
in trying to repair a marriage. If you were to come to me and see me, what, what would be my thoughts or emphases when I'm trying to make up an interview and, and make clinical notes of what, what are we after? One of the things we're very interested in knowing is whether or not you both are committed to saving the marriage. You, uh, so we're looking at commitment. Now, I'm going to say this, and I don't want to discourage you if, if, I, if you're planning on calling me sometime and one of you isn't. But sometimes I do not take clients who do not agree, do not both, or they're not both able to say, we want to work on this marriage and we want to save it. If one does not want to work on it, it becomes 80% harder to save any marriage. It takes two to tango. Anguin 6-8. It is, it, you need to understand how important it is that almost any relationship is salvageable if there's a desire to save it. I don't care at the moment how inferior the desire is. I want to save it because I'm scared uh, that, uh, oh, I'm, I'm just scared to be alone. Okay, good reason. I want to save the marriage because uh, I think my wife will kill me if I leave. All right, not as good a reason, but okay, we got it. All right, you want to make this marriage work, and you're willing to work on it. Now, I want you to think in 20%, 20% of the way to making being okay, 40%, 60%, 80%, and 100%. You are 20% on your way to making your marriage work if you simply want to. What's, the, what's a great motive for wanting to say it? Uh, save it. A great motive would be that God brought us together, and whatever God put together, we don't want it to be torn asunder. I had a preacher come to my office. He's a big guy. I wished I had a gun when he walked in. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm a, I'm a sinner. And uh, so I said, hey, how are you? Fine. And she came in. There they was. And he's leaning forward like, can I talk now? And I said, okay, what's wrong? I just jumped right into it. He stood up and he had slipped his pants. I wrote an article on this for the BBF. <laughs> and he says, the problem is we hate each other. I looked over at the wife and the wife's going I said well what are you doing here then well we shouldn't hate each other I hate her but I don't want to hate her well I hate you too Okay, at this point, I want to tell you, I want you both to look at me, and I only want one of you to talk. Can you do that? Class will be over in a little while. All right, tell me, tell, tell me what you want to do. I asked I ask her, what do you want to do? Oh, I, 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 whew, I hate him so much. But I think living without him, I'd be almost as miserable as having him around. Okay, so we got two people that hate each other and they want the marriage to be saved and here was their core, here was their core offer because God does not want us to hate each other. I said, you know, that's a good idea because even if you get a divorce, you ought to do it in love. Do all things in love. Love never fails. So whatever this anger and hate is, you're making a mess of things because of the anger and hate. But it's a good motive. My motive is God is our Savior and we shouldn't walk away from each other. Bingo, 20%. Guaranteed. I mean, that's a failing grade, isn't it? That's why they fail. They don't make it. But it means that both of you really want to try. You might not even have any hope, but you want to try. The second thing that you would want to do is you would want to identify what you're doing that would destroy your love for each other. 
Now, I'm, I'm going to probably be a little controversial tonight. So controversial, I may have you bow for prayer, and I'll slip out quietly while your heads are bowed <laughs> and your eyes are closed. But here, here, here's my statement. Marriage does not work very good at all without romantic love. And that's a kind of love that we as humans have. It's even different than agape love. It may be God-given, but it, agape love says we love everybody. That won't work out very good for a marriage. You love your wife with agape love? Yeah, I love everybody's wife. That won't work. <laughs> That's not going to work. There's something special and unique and charming and effervescent and exciting and comforting. You remember when you first met how wonderful it was? I ask that to preachers all the time. Oh, goo-goo eyes over there, he, they have a story. I'll tell you, it was, it was a blessing to hear it. But I wasn't saved till late in life. I mean, I was a little bit 22, I think, when I got saved. And I pledged Phi Delta Theta at Wichita State University. And I had on the, the penny loafers, you know, with the pennies and the white socks and the crease in my, and the, the cardigan sweater. And I was walking around like that, you know. This is a little just Marilyn lost as a goose. She was there, sitting down there, and she was smoking a big, long cigarette. We were in a place we shouldn't have been. But hear me, this is so charming. And I saw her, and I said, I bet you'd like to dance with someone like me. So I walked over to her and I made sure she could get a good angle at me. And I said, would you like to dance? She took a big old drag. <sighs> Dropped dead. I'm serious. If she's here, she would say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. I did it. I said it. Dropped dead. <laughs> And, and, I mean, she just thought I was the most arrogant thing in the world. But I had such many, I, but I had such good reasons. It was just truthful arrogance. Anyway, I've, something happened that was different than everything else. No matter what we were, how lost we were, God was not in our bodies. He loved us. We were not serving God. But every time... I would see her, my eyes would just light up. I was careful if she lit up, because I'd get more smoke in my face. <laughs> we were stormy, we fought, but we just couldn't stand being away from each other. We fell in love. What we said is we can't imagine life without each other. Bingo. And it wasn't I couldn't. I left because I wanted a career in California. And I left to go to California. And I cried with my drummer friend from Wichita to Kansas City and never stopped crying. Wuss, get over it. Come on. It's only a woman. You know where we're going? California. <laughs> get a life, man. <laughs> So when we finally got married, guess who it was that was crying at the wedding? It was me. <laughs> and my drummer buddy was there, and he said, yeah, yeah, you didn't know what happiness was. They got married, now it's too late, isn't it? Huh, 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 huh? And we started our worldly life together, and it was just a manic madness of wonder. It was fun. We had a lot of fun. But we were, had this void. You know what I'm talking about. That void that most of you would say God has filled. But here's my point. It isn't, uh, it isn't, it is a magic that happens because of our genetics, how we're born, we fall in love. This love thing, it's it, it, from God. Uh, God is love. 
but it's different in agape love in that all of you are out. She's in. She's in this unique place in my life, and the reason I was crying all the way to Kansas City is I can't stand living without her. And she felt the same way and still does today, if I make enough money. I was going to bring a band, play it alone, my phone, saxophone, you know, just try to, you know, show me the checkbook. Did you like it? I thought it was good. Yeah. yeah. All right. So if you're falling out of love, here's the second part of this. If you're falling out of love, you're in danger of the marriage not making it. No, I understand, you know, you have kids, and the perfect lover becomes the perfect mother. And I understand that he wants to build things, and I understand this. So you want to go out and create something in your work, and you want to climb and be all you can be. And we are creative, and women are relational, and we are conflict-oriented. We almost hope there will be a war. I haven't had a war in a long time. I want to kill something so bad. <laughs> Men and their toys. Men and their toys. I'm going to tell you, if somebody's breaking into your house, you're going to be glad they have toys. I'm going to be glad. You will be glad. Men are sort of made to step in front of women and say, leave her alone. And we will do it in a New York minute. Even to women we don't know. It's just an instinct that does that. Women jump out there. Boys, boys, don't fight. I'm defending you. Will you get in the house? (laughs) Don't distract me when I'm killing What's wrong with these women? It's not a good idea. So then I will ask this interview question. I sometimes and most times actually see them alone. Why are you unhappy in the marriage? Speaking in tongues, Chinese, it's coming out, man. It is coming out. All right. Uh, I got that. Now, if, if you've recovered sufficiently, if you'll send your husband in, I'll, I'll talk with him. Couple of mad dogs. So then I realize that they've done something here. All of the love that they built in as they got to know each other, all the dating and the niceties. You remember when your husband actually listened to you? You know what I'm saying? He was one, oh yeah, how are you doing? Anyone to talk. Uh, do you remember when she did like football? And you discovered later she didn't like football at all. She lied but you gotcha. So we tend to adapt to say, I know what she would like, I know what he would like, and we tend to want to do things that make the other person happy. And it builds this wonderful account in our heart, which makes us love each other, because even when we occasionally hurt each other, it was so wonderful that it didn't cost that much. But you lost a little, but not. we have a mammoth amount of love. We love each other so much. What happens is that if you keep destroying what you were building, you're going to run out of building supplies. You're going to run that account so low that you're going to close the bank. And then your spouse is going to come and do something for you. And you're going to say, no thanks. You're not going to trust her or him. 
you're going to have difficulty coming home, you'll be driving to work and you'll say, you know what, I never in my life ever thought I'd come to this point. But maybe, maybe we're not going to make it. So what I think clinically I like to do is I like to form a list of everything that both of you do that hurts each other. This is where we go from eight and a half by 11 to eight and a half by 365. It's a long page. And it begins, you begin to see exactly what it is that has got them to that point. The reason I do that is I want to know if they're willing to be honest and open about what they don't like about their spouse. Do you know how amazing it is to me? You don't like that? They look, uh-uh, never did. Really? Well, who do you think you are? I don't, uh, Richard, I don't like that either. Oh, so then she snaps at you and tells you off real quick. You're right, I do. <laughs> I don't tell her I'm off if he doesn't need it. Really. But your husband said, I just hate that. But you keep doing it. So your love gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And then it's different in women as it is in men. Men will tend to, they'll stomp out because they want to threaten you. Oh, I'm leaving that. <laughs> and nobody talks to me that way. I'm out here. <sighs> Gets in their truck, fires it up, and squeals the tires. <laughs> he loves me. But he's just driving around the block. <laughs> That's all he's doing. Then when he comes back, <clears throat> he knocks on his own doors, own house's door. Because he knows once you bolt like that, that she's locking the door, you know, you ain't getting in. Women will generally, they will do more to try to save the marriage and go further. We will try to get them to comply with what we want them to do in, an, in a very bad way that costs us love. So <clears throat> what a woman will do is she will say, I want to save the marriage. I want to make it work. God wants us together. They're more relational. Remember, we're more conflict-oriented. And you don't like to see me. I got it. I'm <laughs> For me to pick up that phone and say, I need help, I am the killing machine. I don't need anybody's help. And I had to actually say, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord. I need some kind of help. I'm not going to make it. So women, they keep trying to save the relationship and trying to save it. And then one day they wake up. I have decades of experience with this. And they suddenly flip a switch and they go, that's it. It's usually not even an event. They will come in and I said, I've decided to divorce my husband. And you can do all in the world. You, they, you, can, you can buy them things. You can do things. You can say, I'm sorry. But once that switch flips, in, in a, in, I see in the vast majority, it's harder to get them back. And what happens is we want to stop the deficit spending of love. We want to, we want to say, we've got to stop you falling out of love. If you're stuck in a hole, stop digging. Doesn't that make sense? Stop treating each other in such a way that you're ruining your love for each other. So the point being, after I've got this long list and they thoroughly cooperate and they're willing to be honest and open 
about their dislikes, and I'm telling you right now, if a spouse feels like they can't tell you uh, their bad thoughts, they are going to start withholding their good thoughts because it's going to ruin everything. So it's only to the betterment of the marriage that you all provide an atmosphere of safety and pleasantness that you can discuss things that bother you about the other one. If you never do that, you walk around with all of this list of annoying behavior and all this list of things you can't stand and that hurt your feelings. You never talk about them. But if they're willing in a counseling process to put everything down they don't like, bingo, 40%. You have made a commitment to save this marriage and then you have been willing to share everything on your heart with one another that's always bothered you. You know, quick personal reference. I'm, I'm not diving as much anymore. I was harpooned twice. And I... I can't figure out what makes people laugh in this place. <laughs> the weirdest people. The last thing I heard was whale hole or something like that, you know. <laughs> but I'm that Rick, you just wiped that big grin off your face <laughs> back there. Now, come on, you can do it, son. Just put your head down. <laughs> so I'm diving. Spearing. Marilyn says, I don't like to spear when you kill things. It scares me. But I don't want to miss this dive. It's incredible. I'm going. My son went. We were down there, and he was a rich, good spear fisherman, a kid, just a kid, and he shot a, a hogfish, which is a, like a lobster. And we were down in far from 60 miles from help. And I saw Rich going for the shot fish with his hand and a big barracuda just above the struggling fish. Ugh! I can't, you can't talk. You just make noise. I can't do it. And I, and I took my gun and I just stretched it out and I just put that gun over the fish in his hand. Ugh! And he turned around and I, he saw that and he retracted. So I said, I'm going to get the fish. So I swam up to that fish, and I said, I'm going to kill her. No, I didn't. Uh, but <laughs> I went and I got the fish, thinking I'm, I can handle this, and put the fish on my own stringer on my belt. So we're now not this way. I'm this way. You got that? So I'm, that's where, the, where I got harpooned. But uh, I'm going along, and that barracuda was right above me. And so I went like this, which is our family signal, go back, boat, get to the boat, go to the boat, boat. And Rich went, oh! And as he did that, that barracuda swept under me and bit the fish, three or four that I have in the stringer, just tore them up. But flesh went everywhere. And Rich thought that he had got me, you know. And so I'm sitting here going, my goodness, but I, I just grabbed the belt and I dropped it. And it drops everything, the fish and the whole thing. And I went, ah! And I pointed to the boat, because you can see the boat in the clear water. He went down with his mom, and they just started going away from the scene of the brutal murder. <laughs> and, uh, but I, I thought they were going, I, tell, I pointed up, but they were just going right off the shelf and a slope into 600 feet of water. And, you know, at a certain depth, you're going to get in serious trouble. So they were going down, and my job was trying to, at this point, I'm sucking major air. Believe me, if a barracuda tore up fish right around your stomach, you'd be breathing. <laughs> you know, like that. So I didn't have a lot of air in my tank, but there goes my family. There goes my family into the abyss. I kicked and kicked and kicked and screamed and sucked there and I was trying to just reach the tip of their fins. They were panicking. They were going deeper and deeper and we got down to almost 100 feet. I was screaming to God, help me. And 
I don't know what it was, but Rich spun around and looked. And I pointed. And so they both saw it, and they started up to the boat, and I had no air at 90 feet. Not a problem. Uh, I'm here, aren't I? I made it. But the, the, the point is, here, here's my point. This is pretty dramatic, but I want you to get the point. As a counselor, that's what makes me almost feel that same feeling. I'm trying to get you to the surface. I'm trying to get you some oxygen. And you just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into mistreating each other. And I'm out of air. What, I don't have anything else. If you're not going to do the work, you're not going to have the marriage. Do the work. Stop doing some things. So at that point, we have a list of things that are not Christian, obviously. If you bite and devour one another, you will be consumed with one another. That's a simple truth. So what I got to get you to do is never, ever, 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 never mistreat your spouse. Both of you. You don't lecture your spouse. You don't uh, talk disrespectfully to your spouse. You don't do that. We're not even permitted to do that to one another here in this church. Don't you think we ought to be able to treat our spouses at least as good as we treat the people in church? I can just see us all walking around this charming, effervescent, humorous place. You walking up, I'll give you a word or two. I'm sick and tired of you coming in here and taking my pew. Onward, Christian soldiers. We wouldn't do that. Why? I don't like you. I don't like you. I never liked your mother. I hate your mother. And you yeah, ring. Hello. <laughs> don't tell me you can't do it because you can instantly do it when the phone rings. You don't want to do it. You want to hurt each other. You want to win. You want the other person to lose so you can win. We are never going to get to the good stuff if we don't get some victory over the bad stuff. That's where we fight the devil. Okay. 40%. We're working on it. Do you have any angry outbursts today? Yes, but I went outside and I kicked the dog. Hey, progress. <laughs> How's the dog? The dog died. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that. So we're 40% this marriage. Now we're still in the minus column. You say... Is this marriage going to be saved? I'd say probably not. It's close, but they probably won't make it. Isn't that unbelievable? I'd say, no. All we, all we have is their commitment they want to try, and they've identified the things they don't like about each other, but they will not follow the therapy. And the therapy is two things. Either I want to change, no, I say I, I want you to change the way that you think, or I want you to change the way you behave. I don't care which you do. Both will work. For instance, if you all of a sudden say, I don't care how my spouse treats me, by God's grace, I will not mistreat them ever. That's a thought. Now that thought will work. See, you have this A, B, C therapy, very well known. A is the activating event. Since the dog seemed to work, your spouse kicks your dog. And C is the consequences of him kicking your dog. I'm going to shoot him. 
he made me do it. That event caused me to shoot him. Is he not dead? Okay, now he is. Get serious. Now, what we as therapists would believe, and I think God's word would support, is it's not the activating event, A, that causes the bad behavior, which is much more serious than whatever happened. Say he didn't really kick the dog. He pushed the dog to the side so he could get out the door, and it wasn't right, but the dog's okay. He picked up his leg, glued it on, it's fine. <laughs> activating event, you kicked my dog, I shot you because you made me do it. Now listen to me, angry person. Oh, I'm sorry, this is a church. There's no angry people here. Activating event, it's your fault that I'm, I'm mad at you. And if you hadn't done that, I wouldn't be acting this way. Man, are you crazy or what? Blankety, 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 blank, 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 blank. Because you know why you have the permission to do that? Because you're blaming your depravity and your reactions on his depravity and his actions. Well, you're depraved. I'm going to be depraved now, too, but I'll, I'll be worse than you. Oh, children, children, it's time to come home to dinner and dine in the Word of God. If you bite and devour each other, you're going to consume one another. Stop it. I'll stop if he stops or she stops. Why don't you stop? And then that gives me someone I can really work on. Right? If you come back to therapy next week and I say, well, you had any blow-ups? Yeah, I had three. What, what, what did you say to him? I said nothing. I, I went in the bathroom and banged my head against the mirror. <laughs> mirror? It has to be replaced. Okay. All right, you didn't say anything to him? No, I didn't. Why? Because I'm doing what you tell us to do. Novel thought. You go pay a counselor. You might as well start getting weather or I'm going to own your home. Here's what we believe as a cognitive behavioral therapist, which is what I am. It's not A, it's B that caused you to shoot your husband. B, there's the activating event. The dog has been kicked. He should die. It's what you believe. And you, being so godlike, because vengeance is God and you've decided that you know the appropriate punishment for a dog kicker, <laughs> you have now killed your husband <laughs> because it's his fault. What a justification process you went through. How about if you believe something else? My husband has done something that infuriates me. And I do not want to make it worse by doing something that's worse. This has to stop, but it shouldn't stop by me using my anger in an inappropriate way. The minute that you know you're early angry, it's the minute you're in danger. You hear a lot in scripture, do you, is it wrong for us to uh, be angry? You know, be angry and sin not. <clears throat> Just let me give you by permission, not by command of God. Yes. You weren't expecting that, were you? Here's what I'm going to say, why I said yes. I know we think that, oh yeah, we we're, we're really know the word. We know that we can be angry and without sin. But 90% of us, when we get angry, we do sin. God can get angry and not sin. He knows who to punish, when to punish them, the extent of the punishment, and he knows how to forgive them, and he's willing to forgive them, and he loves them, and he's never going to stop loving them. Did you have all of that in mind? Oh, he deserves to die, but I love him. I'm always going to love him. 
and I want him to get right, and oh, <laughs> okay, exit that last part. Except to say this, that if you do not process your anger into something constructive, you will turn it on yourself if you don't turn it on him and you stop it. You will become angry, unhappy, dissatisfied. We have to process that anger and find a place that does good work. Okay. So, to get past the the 50%, the bell curve. Here's the bell curve. We're at 40%. We want to get over the hump and get down to the other side. So how do we move the therapy from uh, we've identified the lust busters to the next step, which would make it 60%. And at the first time, we could honestly say that there is a very good chance that your marriage might be saved. I mean, it, it's working. You're doing the work. You've stopped abusing each other. You've begun to talk. You've been to settle things. You've been able to jointly decide how we're going to live our lives. You're back to trying to do things together and building your love for one another. Now we're going to go to step number three. What do you do? You, get, you got rid of the love busters. That's number three. You come to therapy, and I say, well, how did you guys do? We had a great week. Well, what do you mean you had a great week? Did you spend a lot of time together? No, but it's so peaceful around our house. It's been so long since we've just not been at each other's throat. We're doing so good. Wow, you guys are smart. That's great. We're ready for number four. Why don't you ask each other what it is for you need from your spouse the most? Or what do you need, what does he need from you and what do you need from him the most? Now that we've stopped hurting each other, why don't we open the bank and we start building? Because the bank, you know, it's like that flower that wilts and closes up and you can't get it open. It's like going to the, this, this love bank that, that Bill talks about. You go to this love bank and you find the, the bank's closed. Or your bank's open, you walk in, say, I'd like to make a deposit in this woman's account. And they'd say, no, it's closed. She closed it. She doesn't want your flowers. She doesn't want want you to try. I don't like you. I don't want to be with you. I want out of this. But if you get past that stage where you stop hurting each other, now it's important we start building the love blocks again. So that means we have to find out what it is that your most important uh, emotional and intimacy needs are. What do you need the most? In, uh, in, in my life, a little, little uh, telling, a personal illustration, uh, recreational companionship was really high in my, what I wanted. I wanted from her. I wanted her to be my companion, to go do things and have fun and be exciting. I wanted her on my boat, waving at other people. Not men, just her. You know. <laughs> she never followed that rule. She, <laughs> you know. But I wanted to, I hate my friends. My spirit-fetching friends, are you kidding me? Can't stand them. I mean, if I go out, you know what, they, I go out, my boat to go diving, and before I can get out of the, the uh, uh, cockpit here and go back and, and the, uh, upper, out of the upper station, get back, get my gear on, they're already down there killing fish. They won't even wait for me. I hate my friends. <laughs> then if I go down there and I get the biggest fish, they deny it. They go, you didn't get that. And they relentlessly run me down. Some of them did not return from my boat one day. I have no idea what happened to them. <laughs> now, let me clarify that. I think most of the men got it. If any of my five friends 
that I've, 20 years I've been through storms with and deep water experiences. If they were in trouble, I'd be there. But if Maryland says, I want to go voting with you, they're off. I, I need her. I need her every hour. I missed her. I tried to get the preacher to fly her up. He But he might not have remembered that. That may be, I, may be a little stretched, what I'm saying there. The deacons wouldn't let me do it. <laughs> Man, that's what you call a wuss. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> if I had my spear gun, I'd nail you in the forehead right there. When she's on my boat, it just, it just brings me alive. I mean, it's so wonderful to sit with her, and we're just driving down the coastline, and we stop and jump in, and we do things, and we just, it's just wonderful. And uh, we, we, don't, we do have arguments about the boat store or the antique store. And we both have attitudes when we go to the other one. Oh, boy, the antique store. Oh, la, 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 I can't wait. I'm going in. Oh, this is so much fun. Richard, shut up. <laughs> no, we don't. She doesn't. She would not say that. But we, we sort of divide the time. And the rule is if you go into the boat store, you've got 20 minutes, and I will not make a smirk. I will not make a sarcastic remark about the boat equipment. I will not giggle. Uh, anything I say will be positive. But you have to get me out there 30 minutes max. I'll die in there. And then I have to do the same in the antique store. And I go, well, look at this. Isn't that pretty? 29 minutes. <laughs> this is lovely. Still 29 minutes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I heard a yep over there. Boy, you're getting in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> Women have... Uh, a stronger need for affection, and men don't usually understand that. Men uh, think about the intimacies of life <laughs> all the time. I heard a comedian say, if you knew what I was thinking, you'd never stop slapping me. And it was just one of those, I know, I know. But I need to mention that that's an important part of your marriage. Conversation, women, you, you've heard the joke, men, women speak uh, men speak 13,000 words, I guess, a day, and women 26,000. By the time you get home, you've used up all your words. No need to talk. Recreational companionship, usually a man's need. Honesty and openness, it is a woman's need more than a man's. Honesty and openness. Um, I told uh, someone here that uh, my wife always lies to me. She does. It doesn't bother me at all. Because I'm so smart, I know when she's lying. I'll say, do you have any money? And she says, does she have any money? Liars. All of you. <laughs> the whole pack of you. There's a woman's insurrection in this church. They actually confess right here in the auditorium that they're lying to their husband. We know it. Hey, do I look like I've lost some weight? Oh, yes, you look great. Liar. <laughs> Attractive spouse, it's usually a man's need. They love it. I love it when Marilyn just looks so sharp. Going into preacher's meetings anywhere. I, this, is, this is my gal. And, uh, but, and I'm telling you, when she looks good, I feel good. Attractive spouse, you need to know that I've seen over my history of counseling that there are the ugliest men that run off with the most beautiful women. And you'd say, what is wrong with your eyes? Can you not see, woman? That is Godzilla sitting there. <laughs> That is not an identifiable beast. 
I just love him. Why? Oh, he, he just is so affectionate, and he talks, and he talks, and he talks, and he talks to me. He's so concerned about me. He, he's, he's so loving. I'm going to, and I've said this many places. I don't know if I've ever said it to any of you. But if we are going to love our wives like they should be loved, we should at least be as good as a gigolo because somebody that would want to steal a wife knows how to act like they care. And if you don't care, behavioral therapy says this, I don't care whether you care or not. You treat your wife right long enough. And women, if you treat your husband right long enough, it will become a habit. You'll get used to it. By obedience to the love of God that teaches us that we ought to love one another supremely. If you practice what you don't like long enough, just like that cigarette, one day you'll take a breath and you'll say, I'm not quitting this, I love this. Only it'll be the right thing instead of the wrong thing. Domestic support, financial support, family commitment, admiration. Admiration is the, is the man's probably most strongest emotional needs. And if you think that's wrong, when you, when you get out of here and you start to go home, it wouldn't surprise me. Your big, handsome, strong husband looks at you and goes, you know, when Richard talked about that admiration thing. I don't need that. I don't need that at all. He's lying. It makes him feel weak to admit it. I'm telling you when the Super Bowl comes on, it's over. <laughs> Next year. <laughs> uh, some big game comes on. And it's uh, 30 seconds to go. I want you to sit down and watch your husband watching the game. Don't watch, don't watch the players and the cheering. Don't pay, just watch it. And it's 30 seconds to go, and there goes that scat back oh, running down there just like crazy. The clock has expired. It's the Halo Mary, and somehow he climbs about six feet up in the air, and he grabs that ball. And he gets hit and almost crushed, and he comes down with that ball in his hand. And the stadium goes wild. What happens to the guy who caught the ball? That's who I want you to watch. Oh, God. And the tears coming down his eyes. And the people are, you know what he's doing? Oh, what a glorious moment. I was the hero of the game. You, why do you think guys put their lives on the line so there can be an America? There's a part of them that wants to come back and say, I did it. And boy, don't you, don't miss walking up in the airport and just say, let me shake your hand, buddy. Thank you. When you see someone in uniform, thank you for your service. They're dying out there. And what takes those young bucks and gets them excited and throws them out there is they just want someone to recognize, I'm trying to do the right thing. I've seen grown men cry bitterly. I just want you to like me. Okay, I'm a dunce and I forget and I don't do, I'm desperate that you find a reason to put your arms around me and tell me that I'm great. I, I did something good. I spoke at Maranatha, 2,500 in attendance at the graduation. And uh, it was back when Dr. Cedarholm was the thing, and I had to wear the dress. <laughs> Whew. And then, of course, they wouldn't let you wear a colored shirt there. You had to have a white shirt on, but I had to wear a dress. It's, I mean, it seemed complicated to me. Uh, yeah. I said, no heels, right? You know, no. Stilettos? No, I'm not going to do that. So anyway, unlike you've seen me, I'm not a good preacher, and I told you that, so it's your fault. I go right to see. And, uh, but 
when I, somehow, it really was a good sermon. I lost it in God. I just lost it. And I was, in, I was immensely enjoying myself. It was just, it was God, I felt God all over me. And there was cheering, and there was, I think, 27 people at a graduation in college that wanted to, they had them step forward and made a commitment to Christ. And when I was done, Dr. Cedar came up and he slapped me on the back. He said, that's what we're looking for right there. That's what we're looking for. And I said, oh, thank you. And I was, I just was so, it wasn't pride. It was, I was where God needed me, and I stood up to David or whatever it was. But all of a sudden, oh, Lord, forgive my lust. This beautiful green-eyed woman was pushing people aside, and she's making her way down the aisle. And she said, Richard, and she jumped in my arms. I don't know if it's appropriate. I don't care. <laughs> it was my beautiful wife, and she held me, and she said, I'm so proud of you. Woo! With it, without admiration, men tend to dry up. Now, I know what they're going to say. They're going to say, nah, I don't need that. Liars, liars. Okay, you get it? Getting from 60, uh, what, is, what are your needs? That's 60%. You know what you need. To get to 80, you are going to do and meet all of those needs. The most important ones. And you're going to meet them consistently. Now, what I've given you, and I'm about to close, is I've given you the game plan that would likely happen if you came to see me. Now, there's a lot of variations. Sometimes we even change models. Depends on what the problem is. But can you see as a believer why this would work? We have simply gotten rid of things that you do that is so unchristian that you're not even allowed to act that way to the people here in the church. Then we've added the element of love because you become willing to concentrate and become a professional almost at meeting the most important needs of your spouse consistently. And you're going to walk in and you're going to say, we love each other. Remember that guy that we hate each other? Was that this morning or was that tonight? I don't, it's not, yeah. I don't know. I've lost track of time. Who am I? And... Uh, we hate each other. And I wrote the article in the BBF, and they published it by permission of the clients. And they're just doing glorious. Even today, they're just doing glorious. I think they still hate each other, but they say we just love hating each other. <laughs> well, I did some genealogy on my family. <clears throat> and when I found out my immigrating family that came in 1842, 58 days on a wooden boat um, to, from Cornwall, England to America, they were saved, born-again Methodist. And I noticed uh, in the, the obituaries that I found that they both died the same day. Now, you know what I was thinking about 1842, the plague, uh, you know, it wasn't an auto accident. I mean, what was it that could have happened that they both died in the same day? I have such a jewel in my hand. I had such a rich life. I pray I live to be 300, but well, no, no. And a, a, a researcher called me and he said, she said, I think I have something for you. I don't want to tell you. I'm just going to send it to you. And what she sent me was an article from the Galena Daily Gazette, February 1st, 1882, the day that my immigrating family passed away, whose name was Richard Angwin. And I saw the big tombstone, big monument. That almost stopped my heart. I'm walking around looking like I know they're buried here somewhere. And I looked at that monument and it said, Richard Angwin. It's a killer. I'm telling you, you got to get a hold of yourself. Death never claims a victim without causing sorrow to some heart. 
but it ought can rob such a visitation of its setting, of its sting. It is the picture of two old people who have journeyed hand in hand for many years, laying down life's burdens and entering into rest together. Such was the lot of Mr. and Mrs. Richard Anglin, two worthy residents of Galena. Sunday morning, he died at his home on Adam Street. I visited there after a brief illness, and 12 hours later, his faithful wife breathed her last. She was 84 years of age, and he was 81, and for 63 years, they had lived together. They were members of the Methodist Episcopal Church. I'm sorry, Meth the Baptist Episcopal Church. <laughs> Throughout their life, they were the most worthy people. Their lives were spent in doing good, and none knew them that did not love and honor them. In her last hours, Mrs. Angwin was visited by her pastor, to whom she said, my partner is gone. And he knew that she wished to follow. You know what divorce is? It's a forever funeral. You know what death is to Christians? It's together forever. I've heard so many people, some of you saying, I, I want to see this through. I want us to go hand in hand. I want us to be there. Rarely would that ever happen. What a treasure that I carry. What an inspiration. Make it happen and live in God's will. You need this first motivation. I want to make this marriage work. And if my partner does, we are going to work at it. Call me. And if you keep fighting, 1-800-CALL-RICHARD. Some of you might know that by now. <laughs> Some of you really tried to call it. That's not a real number. <laughs> it's on my card. But you can call. I'll be your coach. I'll help you. It's not free. It's very discounted. Sometimes we can help when we can. Can I have you bow your heads for prayer, please? Pastor, if you'll come and I'll let you handle whatever you, God, is in your heart. I know that some people might be thinking about the relationship and uh, how to make it better. And uh, thank you for the honor of being here.